Alright, so I'm here in my room. My computer is on in front of me. I've got my microphone set up. There's a notepad open with some notes about my podcast. It's time to rewind. It looks like it's on the 42nd scene of Memento that starts in black and white at 86 minutes and 23 seconds with Leonard talking on the phone about his condition and flipping over a Polaroid of himself and ends at 89 minutes and 59 seconds with Leonard asking about what drug dealer? Uh, hang on. Uh. Who is this? Bubba! It's me! It's Lisa Leahy! You know me. I'm your co-host for this podcast. I'm from oh. Rabbit Hole Podcasts, remember? Oh, of course. Uh, although I prefer to be called Bubba Wheat. And, uh, and who is this? Bubba Wheat. It's me. It's Eric, your long, long-time co-host. Again. Oh, of course. I, I apologize. And and there's someone else here. Uh, who are you? Bubba Wheat. This is this is Stephen Tobolowsky, a.k.a. Sammy Jenkins from Memento. Oh. oh, well, well, I sure as heck far remember you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this this is, uh, you know, fantastic to have you join us here today. And, so, you know, bef- before we jump into the scene, you know, we just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about your your memories about Memento and and filming it and and how all of that went. Yeah, it it was uh, remarkable. Uh, I guess I'll start off with uh, getting the script. They uh, sent me the script for Memento, and <clears throat> you do a movie podcast. You know how long most first draft movie scripts are that you get. Yeah, the, the, I think the, the kind of the standard is like one page per minute of screen time. You got it. Okay. So basically 120 pages for a first draft is normal. And then the producer tried to whittle that down to, uh, you know, 100 pages, maybe even 99, 98. So <clears throat> I get the script for Memento and I'm making this number up, but it's somewhere between three and 400 pages. <laughs> It's like gone with the wind. It's like it's the hugest thing in the world. And usually for an actor, when they don't know anything about it, if you get a script that's over 120 pages, it's a red flag for this is not a good script. This is a beginner. This is somebody who doesn't know the screenwriting format that creates one minute per page that enables you to have a 120 page script. So I wasn't doing anything at the time. So I said, okay, I'll read the damn script. So I go up to my bedroom and I open up to Scarlett O'Hara Tara and I'm starting to read this script and I get about halfway through about, I've been reading for a couple of hours and I've read about a hundred, 120 pages and my wife comes in the room and I close the script and throw it across the room. And she said, terrible. And I said, actually, this is very good. I don't understand why this is so long. <laughs> so I continue to read the screenplay. I read the whole thing. And then comes a torrent of profanity from upstairs. And Annie comes running up and says, what? It turned out to be the worst screenplay ever. I said, Annie, it could be the best screenplay I've ever read. Now, I don't know when Memento came out. What was it, 2000 or something? Yeah, Yeah, 2000. 2000. To this day, it is still the greatest screenplay I have ever read. 
And the reason why it was so long is that uh, Chris and his brother, in writing the, the screenplay, wrote intricately the way each shot should be uh, to where it looks like it is exactly the same as the previous day or the next day in terms of memory, exactly what tattoos were, were visible. What, what, it was an entire roadmap for the, for the movie. So I call my agent and I said, I have to meet Chris Dolan on this. I have to meet him about this script. Have to. Must. So they set up an appointment because there isn't a whole lot for Sammy Jenkins to read in the script mm-hmm. unless you're reading the scene with the, what is it, the psych, where they're giving me electroshock and, to see if I'm faking it or not. Mm-hmm. You remember mm-hmm. those scenes? Yes. Those are black and white scenes, I think. Uh, yes, they are. So I go in and I see Chris and Chris is all kind of laughing and he says, well, Stephen, I'm so glad you like the screenplay, but there's not really a lot we could read for Sammy Jenkins. I said, I'm not going to read for Sammy Jenkins. I said, when people read this screenplay, everybody is going to want to be in this show. It's the best damn thing I've ever read. What I'm saying is this, out of everybody you're seeing that's going to read for Sammy Jenkins, I am the only one, I bet, who's actually had amnesia. And Chris said, huh? Uh, Have a seat. (laughs) So (laughs) sat down and I explained what happened to me. And that is I had a kidney stone and I went to Cedar sinai to have it removed. And they tried an experimental drug on me uh, in which I'm a big guy. I'm like 6'3". I'm 200 pounds or so. It was a new kind of anesthetic that wouldn't put you to sleep, but would make you be awake, follow commands, but immediately forget them. So you would experience the pain, but you would immediately forget. Oh, wow. So they gave me this shot. I went, they, I had the kidney stone removed. I came home. But like any general anesthesia, it took days for it to wear off. And in that period of time, I would find myself awake, boom, in this one second in the living room with a glass of water that was half full. I would have no idea if I had drunk half the glass of water and was returning to the kitchen or if I had just filled my glass and was going to the bedroom. I had no idea. Wow. I, I would find myself in the bathroom uh, holding little Steve standing over the <laughs> toilet, and I would not know, boom, born that moment. That moment, born, not know if I had peed or if I needed to pee. I Not knowing. I had no wow. idea how I got there or what had happened. And my wife would yell, you finished 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Please, time for you to go. And it was the most remarkable week I had ever spent. And so I was thrilled that uh, Chris cast me in the movie pretty much based on the fact that I had had amnesia before. Yeah, that, wow. that's that's incredible. And how, uh, how long did did that condition last? About a week. Wow. <clears throat> about a week. And like anything else, <clears throat> the first few days it was more amnesia than not. And near the end of it, again, I would be talking with friends, and I would not, I would suddenly be born in that moment, and I wouldn't know where I was or what I was doing, and. My wife would have to explain to everybody, Stephen has amnesia. 
And so this is his condition now until this medicine wears off, which yeah. which made it very difficult. Especially since it was before the movie came out. So you can't be like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like what happened in Memento. And, and, uh, and it, it presented problems to me in shooting it. And I don't know if you want me to segue into that, if you want to ask a different sure. question. Now. No, please yeah. continue the segue. Yeah. So in doing the scene uh, with Harriet at the end, with the shot and all that stuff. And in all my scenes, but particularly that scene, Chris likes to do a lot of coverage and he likes to do a lot of shots from different angles and get a lot of interesting kind of looks at things going. As an actor, you have to make a decision. Are you going to fake it or are you going to do it? Women have to do this all the time when they're on law and order and they have to cry. You know, and, and you go like, oh, God. And you see them trying to churn it up, like, because it's the 50th take. And it's from a different angle. And they're still trying to cry. And they finished crying two hours ago, actually. But with having amnesia, it was, it made shooting Memento the most difficult job to this date I've ever had as an actor. Because you realize, once the cameras are in front of you and rolling, the only thing that drives you through a scene as an actor is your intention. It's your motivation, like <laughs> Marlon Brando would say. Yes. It's your intention. But if you have amnesia, you have no intention and you have no motivation. You don't remember anything. So as an actor, you have to decide, are you going to fake it and pretend you can't remember? Or are you just not going to remember and throw it out there for the world. Throw it out there for Chris and dare to fail about not knowing where you are, what you're doing in the scene ever. And so I chose to really do it. I think that that's interesting, the way that Memento does present this this type of amnesia as a whole, because there are very few scenes where you see Leonard or Sammy just like looking around and trying to figure out where they where they are because they're both used to faking it. They're you know they mention that a lot within the movie that you know you think that you're supposed to recognize somebody you pretend to recognize them and and I think that comes through a lot in in both of the performances of of you and Guy Pierce. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just as a side note, Guy Pierce, Guy Pierce, what a spirit, what a force. What a great guy to have at the, you know, a lot of times movies like this, if they're successful, kind of win or lose, depending on the energy of the person who's the lead of the film. It certainly was true with Groundhog Day, even though people mm. say, oh, Bill was this, Bill was that. In the scenes, Bill was absolutely fantastic. And... <clears throat> He was different every time. He was always in the moment. Same thing with Guy. He was, and in between scenes, he was filled with joy. He was filled with such positive energy. We felt like we were on a huge party. And and once the scene started, he was 100% committed every take all the time. And he was a great leader to have there. And, of course, Chris is a great, great leader. He's a great, great director. And, uh he managed everything beautifully, you know. How often did you have to, uh, like on average, retake, 
your scenes because I look at your scenes and there's so much, even though uh, Sammy Jenkins doesn't speak much, there's so much in your facial expression. There's so much just in your eyes, just where you're looking and then like a, a crinkle of the eye. There's so much there. How often did uh, Chris Nolan have you retake scenes? A lot. Okay. Uh, Chris, Chris does a lot of coverage and a lot of everything, which is why I felt like I was falling down a laundry chute the whole time we were shooting the movie, not knowing where I was or what I was doing ever in any scene. So, you know, I'm always looking in the moment for something that I could identify, whether it was the TV changer in my hand or my wife's face or her eyes or hearing her voice. And knowing, oh, it's the shot, time for the shot, that, that there was something that I knew. Uh, so it was the whole thing was kind of terrifying to do. But uh, the end result, the movie's spectacular. Absolutely. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned about your reaction when you first read the script and you just talked a bit there about working with Christopher Nolan. Now, this was only his second full length movie, so he was not, you know, Christopher Nolan yet at this point. Right. Did you have a sense then from working with him on this early project of what he could one day turn into where he now is just this you know, incredible movie maker? Not really. Uh, I, I just, you know, at that point in my career, you know, you work with a lot of directors and some of them are really good. And some of them are young up-and-comers like Chris that are really good. Some are like TV directors that have kind of graduated to film. They're kind of by-the-book kind of people. But, you know, I had no idea there was something like a Dunkirk that was mm. going to come down the line, which I still think is one of the greatest movies ever made. Nice. Um, I, I know you talked a little bit about you know working with Guy Pierce. Did you – spend any time with him discussing like uh you know how he plays leonard versus how you play sammy or did you keep that separate 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 uh and i think that's an important thing i think i learned early in my career is don't talk to people about your process don't talk to people about their process leave it alone the the only thing that matters is the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're going to do something that's related to the story that involves that person, you could let them know, I'm thinking about something here now, but don't ever talk about process because then you end up standing outside yourself and you end up watching yourself perform, which is the worst thing in the world. Based on that, then do you, a two part question, do you think that Leonard is Sammy his whole story is a defense mechanism. And if and based on what your answer is, is that something you discussed with the Nolans or anyone else? Or did you come up to that opinion on your own? I ended up with the opinion that uh, Leonard and Sammy were the same person mm. was the opinion I came up with. But I didn't really discuss it with anyone. And I, I and <laughs> it's kind of unimportant. I, I think it's part of the mystery of the movie. And I, I and it's a valid mystery. There, mm -hmm. there are some mysteries in movies that are cheats and are not valid. Uh, but in Memento, it is valid. And, and what I mean by that is sometimes a screenwriter will cheat to make the story make sense mm -hmm. or give the story some sort of credence or validity. In terms of 
memento, it doesn't matter because the story is bigger than just really what happened to Leonard. I remember I took, first time I saw Memento, I took my son, Robert. I think he was 12 at the time. We saw it together. And I'm watching and I go like, "Did this is kind of hard to understand, I know. And Robert said, no, not hard to understand at all. Everything Teddy says is true. <laughs> oh, wow. Mm, interesting. He's Everything Joey Panleone says is true. And everything else is not true. Huh. And he said that at the age of 12. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting take. I I believe, you know, we've we've talked about this quite a bit. And, and I know I, you know, my understanding of it, and, and I think, um, you know, most everybody here agrees with me, is everyone is an unreliable narrator. Like, no one is, <laughs> is telling 100% the truth. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what makes narrative so fascinating. You know, I'm an English teacher. I've said it before. So my whole life is stories in any context, whether they're told verbally, whether it's on print, whether it's on screen, whether it's a piece of art, whatever it is. But my favorite, favorite thing is ambiguity and exactly what you said, where the answer doesn't matter. You know, like to bring up Christopher Nolan's uh, Inception, you know, like that end scene and the fact that so many people have asked him, does the top fall? Does that he says it doesn't matter? Who cares? He can tell I can argue both ways to that. And I've had students argue with me. It's like, well, it does or it doesn't. And I'm like, I don't care. It's the only story where I am so happy not knowing because it doesn't matter. And I think with Memento, this idea of what the quote right answer actually is doesn't matter because it's the journey and it's thinking beyond the boundaries of this story, whether we're talking about Jonathan Nolan's text or the film's text, you know, you have to think now, okay, where has Leonard been before this movie and where does Leonard go after the movie? Because now that Teddy's not with us anymore, there's no one to handle him. And now he's really just out in the open and can go after whatever John G or James G he wants. And it's not a matter of whether he is or isn't Sammy Jenkins. It's here's what this guy does in order to live. And this is the experience, the snapshot we get. And I just, it's one of the reasons it's one of my absolute top favorite movies. Yeah. I'm, I'm just sitting over here, nodding my head violently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't say. always carry in the, in the podcast form. <laughs> As uh, uh, in going into the weeds a little bit as an English teacher, one of my favorite writers of all time is George Eliot. Oh, sure. And the way George Eliot plays with reality. Yes. Is that like if you take a look at something like uh, Mill and the Floss uh, or even Daniel Deronda, what she does, Marianne Evans is, is George Eliot. What George Eliot does is. The first impression you get of a particular character makes a powerful impression on you. It, you feel like it's the truth. Mm-hmm. So in Mill and the Floss, when the little girl comes down the stairs after cutting her hair off because everyone makes fun of how long it is, she sits. Everyone is mocking her except her father, who puts his arm around her and comforts her and says, oh, you're my beautiful, beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. That's our first impression of her father who turns out being the absolute villain in the piece. Right. He's hated, but as an audience, we are struck because we are fighting the entire book with the narrative of, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought this was the sweet guy. I thought this was the good guy. Yes. And I think Memento does 
the same thing is that it gives it gives you a narrative that you think you understand and you can you continually have to fight it you right. continually have to fight to make sense of the narrative and to redefine for yourself you in a sense become Leonard in, in trying to piece together what reality is and that's one of the brilliant things this movie does which which I don't think I can't think of any other movie that really does it in such a artful way I agree. Uh, 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 some movies try to do it in a kind of expository way of of where you get different versions of the same story uh and and then you have to reconnoiter what's going on but it's not emotionally driven but in memento it's emotionally driven to where you have to go like wait a minute now i have to redefine my terms as to where i am in this movie and very few movies could do that Absolutely. Yeah. It reminds me real quick. I'm sorry, guys. I, I'm, I'm on my literary rabbit hole. There's a quote in Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and it's right. It's like on page three. And um, Chief Bromden says it's the truth, even if it didn't really happen. <laughs> and it's one of the, my favorite quotes ever, because I'm very much in this Alice in Wonderland, American gods. Like there's a reality beyond our perception that if the right door just opened, we could get through and experience it. And my students are probably nodding their heads right now listening to this because, you know, I'm going to make them <laughs> listen to this. But I say it so much like I love this idea where truth is perception. So there is no real truth. You know, and so what you were just saying is there is no truth. It's the emotion. It's how do you feel in the moment in that one second that matters. And I just I love that that's the stuff you were talking about. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I also love that, uh, like you mentioned, the, the first impressions, because, you know, in, in this movie, your first impressions really change because you, you think of Leonard as being, you know, this insurance investigator wearing, you know, a nice, you know, fairly nice suit. And then you find out that that's not even his suit that he's wearing, and, and he becomes more of a villain as you watch the movie. And, and Natalie seems like she's very helpful, and then she turns into more of a villain. And Teddy, it's like, you know, it, it seems like he's the villain, and then yeah. he becomes more of a friend to Leonard as you go through. And then he's all, and then he also kind of comes back around in a bit more shades of gray towards the end. So he's. You know, not really a hero, but he's not, you know, the the type of character that's deserved to get killed at the uh, in the opening scene. Right. And I think people really have a tough time with that adjustment. Like they can adjust with uh, somebody they trust betraying them. They're kind of like, oh, this is terrible. But but to find out that they've trusted somebody who in the beginning, like this person's a villain. And then at the end, you find out this person is actually doing good things. They go, no, 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 no. He still was shady. He still <laughs> – they can't get away from this idea of, no, this person was a villain. They like to hold on to that. Um, numerous students who were like, nope, still hate Teddy. I don't care what he says. <laughs> and I love that your 12-year-old was like, nope, he's been telling the truth from the beginning. From the beginning. I love that. And then there, there are a few questions too about, you know, the, this specific scene that, that, um, you know, in, in the movie that we're here today. Um, do, do you remember, like, was there a discussion? Because this is the scene where, you know, after, uh, after Sammy's final exam, we see him sitting in, in the chair in the mental mm -hmm. institution. Mm -hmm. And then we have the quick two frame shot of Sammy being replaced by, Leonard. I Leonard. 
Uh, was that um, like, do you remember how that was presented in the script or how it was presented during filming? Chris said, I'm not really sure what we want to do here. He says, so I want to just shoot various options because mm-hmm. we may not have you in this mental home at the end. And we may just have Leonard in the home at the at the end, or we may have just you at the home at the end, or we may switch. We don't know. So we just shot several different versions and he picked, you know, the way he wanted to tell the story. That one, as I recall, was one that was the most of of a toss up, you know, as to how he wanted to cap that off. But if you take a look at a lot of his movies, he always has a scene near the end where there is some sort of meeting with of generations, the older generation and the new generation, some sort of cryptic little beat at the end of a lot of his movies that's multi-generational. And, and you go like, oh, well, what is this? In Memento, I think it's, it's, it's the most uh, strong in terms of storytelling. And, and, and it really leads you to think that Leonard and Sammy Jenkins were the same person. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that was my impression when I saw the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like that one, two second, not even two seconds, it's two frames, because yeah. you you can't pin that down. That's like I was trying to pause it earlier today to find the exact timestamp. It's at that 130 mark, and uh, the number of times I've had to try pausing that in my classes. But it's mm-hmm. it's the one single moment where you have an authentic third-person narrator, where you do not have Leonard necessarily telling you the story anymore. And it's that definitely is the, the place I would point to if I was arguing, yes, Sammy and, and Leonard are the same person. Like, here's that flash of memory, and nope, it's gone. Right. And then, and also that's, that's presented in a scene where it's not somebody else telling the story. Like, right. the, the other time whenever the, the positions change and the perspective changes, whenever Teddy is telling Leonard and he's affecting the story, but this is just leonard telling his version of the story so we're only getting the one side of it and and it doesn't at at least from our perspective because we never hear the person on the other end of the phone but we don't get the impressions that the person on the phone who is most likely teddy is influencing this sammy jenkins story Mm -hmm. right and then i i also wanted to to talk a little bit about you know these scenes with uh between you and harriet um you know sammy Sammy Jenkins and his wife, and because you know this is really the most heartbreaking moment. So with this final test, like how did you uh, approach the scene? Just uh, the way I approached uh, watching the TV, and with the same amount of going moment to moment, and this is what I'm doing next. And of course, you know, working with Harriet. Ugh, she's so damn good, Mm. and so. Basically, Chris, as I recall, he would have kind of two shots kind of going at the same time. He would either have a two and a close up on Harriet or a two and a close up on me at the same time. So you're able to join, make it always look like it's part of the scene. So I just had to keep going. This is this is something I know how to do. And there's a part of me that's so desperate to find me again. 
you know, to do something that's right and to get the approval from her eyes, which she always gave. But at the same time, as I gave her another shot and another shot and another shot, it was like her realization that I would kill her. Mm. And there was nothing, you know, it wasn't a fake it, or or whatever. It it was terrifying. And I, I thought she just, it was just, again, it killed me watching the scene. And, yeah, it, it's but, like she she has this look of, you know, the, this this terror in her eyes, but also this this slight understanding, like she's finally understanding that this is real, but it's too late, and and kind of and and I almost you almost think that there's also a little bit of sadness for what she's putting Sammy through because she's realizing mm-hmm. that he's succeeding in this test but you know it's she's failing for the scene to work it requires one person to be completely aware which is harriet Hmm. and one person like me that every day is tabula rasa every moment is you're just being born again in that moment like i was with the drug with the kidney stone Mm -hmm. like every moment is like moment one of you on earth and It has to have just no spin to it. It just has to be almost neutral and like, oh, this is the next thing I'm doing. This is the next thing I'm doing without any judgment on it or value on it. It has to be blank. Uh, And she has to really carry the consequence of the scene, both for herself and for me. And now going back to – what you said before about um, you know using the facial expressions and the body language uh, in there, it, after you give her the last shot before um, she fades away, there's there's a close up of you where your facial expression is clearly different than it was earlier in the scene. That there might be some sort of recognition that something is off, but maybe you don't know quite what it is. Um, can you, t- I mean, I know this is asking a lot to remember from something from almost 25 years ago, but <laughs> do you remember like, you know, when you got to that part of the scene, what the thought process was of tweaking the facial expression to put a little bit of doubt in the mind of the viewer of is Sammy just a little bit, is Sammy faking or is this real? Again, that's all Chris mm, is okay. that <clears throat> Chris did a lot of coverage. And uh, so he had a lot of choices. And so as an actor, as an actor, one of your goals is just to be as truthful as you can in the moment each time that he does a shot, whether it's a long shot or a close up or whatever, just each time to do it, be as truthful as you can. And you're always affected by the process. It's always difficult when you do a lot of takes to get back to square one. Uh, because you've been affected by the last take you did and the three takes before mm. that. So you have to get to a point where it's neutral. So I'm sure that there were plenty of choices that Chris had, uh, especially in the real close-ups of me, mm-hmm. to where he could pick something that, oh, this this is a little different. But that's all Chris, and that's all Chris's eye and his sensibility. It that's was, so fascinating. It wasn't me. 
That's so fascinating you say that, Eric, because I noticed it, too. There was like yeah. a little eye crinkle. And I was like, oh, is he feeling that guilt? Right. Because in the beginning of the sequence, you've got Leonard saying you feel guilty. You have no idea why. And I wondered the same thing. If that was you, Stephen, like coming up with I feel something. I feel guilty, but I'm not sure why. But that's so interesting that that's what came up in editing. Yeah. And, and like I said, you'll, you'll have some people like on Groundhog Day, Harold Ramis, you know, Bill and I had scenes where we had one take, one print, move on. You, you know, with Chris, that isn't what you do. <laughs> with Chris, you know, you have sure. multiple takes, and now we're going to change the camera and do multiple takes and multiple takes. So you become very much uh, – there's no way as an actor, at least for me, you could be bigger than the scene. The scene always ends up being bigger than you, and – you end up always trying to get back to one, finding that place where one is, but it's impossible to really get back to one when you do a lot of takes. It is, which is beneficial in a Chris movie. Do you what? Do you remember if this this scene was filmed in one day? Oh yeah, we we shot the Harriet scene in one day. Okay, but but the difficult thing was if if you look at the script, the script was probably I want to say maybe two thirds of a page of just of nothing of just description. There were no lines. There was no nothing there. All that was kind of made up at, in the moment. And, you know, with Leonard coming to the door. And so it's another thing having to improvise when you can't remember anything that becomes even more difficult to do. And so, you know, we would do a take and Chris would suggest, well, maybe say this, maybe because there was nothing really written out except a description of that scene. As I recall, there may have been a line somewhere, but not what we ended up shooting. That was tough. That that reminds me of um, the, you know, the, the earlier scene with uh, with you and uh, um, with Sammy Jenkins and his and his wife whenever you know he did something wrong and she kind of has this breakdown and in in the commentary he mentions that you know that there was not like you said there was nothing in the script that was all improvised and right. and i know like as a viewer it's you know you you get the emotion but you you also don't really understand what's going on because there's not enough you know information given to us it, it's just you know something about some someone calling and you know her getting upset just over the information and, and you know i i think that's kind of fascinating to to see come through yeah yeah it, it's very interesting if you take a look everybody thinks that there was a ton of improvisation in groundhog day there was almost none and in memento you would think like well there's probably no improvisation or very little cuz so much of it is is bound in the narrative of the script but it's not true. There was tons of improvisation in Memento. So you, you never can tell. Uh, it's, it, there are two different uh, realms that you have to be familiar with as an actor. Do you have a preference for one or the other as an actor with your process? No, it's it, it, a lot of it depends on the director and what they're what you're shooting, and what you're used to doing. Comedy requires a lot of precision mm -hmm. and a lot of clarity. So if if you're doing a comedy and generally you have a script, it's good because then everybody knows what the rules are and what the game plan is because you don't want to be in a mess. And uh, 
if you're in a drama, well, I know like, for example, the two or three law and orders I did, boy, you cannot improvise a, a comma. I mean, everything has to be exactly the way it's written. Everything has to be exact. And uh, so you just have to be aware as an actor of which kind of bag of skills or whatever you have to bring that particular day. And, and, and I know we've, we've brought up Groundhog Day quite a bit. And, and I think that that's you know, fantastic because you know, I've, I designed this podcast as kind of a time loop podcast and, and I'm covering Memento and, you know, most people are not going to say that this is a time loop movie, but I, I almost look at it as like a reverse Groundhog Day where, um, you know, Leonard is the, the one that's being reset and everybody else around him is the Mo- Bill Mur- Murray character that's dealing with this one person that's, you know, stuck in a time loop and they keep resetting every 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. And, and, and so much of it is what story do you as the audience believe? Mm-hmm. And that's what the movie sort of asks, like, what is your take on the reality of what's happening here? And it alters through the movie. That's because the movie is so good. Your your opinion of things change in the movie and you end up in this place where I think, you know, uh, they want you to be. And that is reality is really a kind of is it a mutable thing? It's a it's changeable depending upon what you were able to see and what you were able to know. And if whatever limitations you have on your ability to see and know your view of reality will be different. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It, it has been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure. I'm I'm so thankful for you to be so generous with your time, especially with you being sick today. Yes. Well, it's my really pleasure. From here, I go to antibiotics, so you're <laughs> going to be the high point of my day. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. Well, we are going to let you go, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us and, uh, you know, get some rest and hopefully, hopefully you feel better soon. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes. Thank thank you you so much, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 All right. right. So, so back, back to this scene because there, you know, this, we do get a lot of, you know, Guy Pierce moments, uh, you know, of him on the phone. And the the last black and white scene was him getting, you know, all riled up. And, and he has, you know, the, this photograph, the, this dirty photograph of him pointing to his chest looking happy. And in, in this part of the scene, you know, we see him like absentmindedly, absentmindedly just flip it over. So he's like no longer looking at it. Mm-hmm. Like uh, what... What do you think is going through Leonard's mind at that point? Like, do you, do you think that he's kind of in denial and, and just like is, is in avoidance mode? It's an interesting question because it seems like such a small move to just, you know, cause he's talking and he's engaged in what he's talking about. And he's like, well, this thing's distracting me. I'm going to turn it over. Or is it this is a moment that I don't remember and the fact that I don't remember makes me angry. I'm going to flip it over. Um, Or does this trigger a memory and I don't want to think about that right now. So I'm going to flip it over like you can overanalyze to death. It's kind of what I do for a living. (laughs) What happens in a single motion? But I love that that's the point. 
You know, like there is never going to be a right answer with this film and with these individual things. And when I watch it and I try and keep my English teaching self at bay, I look at it as he's in the middle of talking about things. And that could have been an index card with his next tattoo written down. He would have flipped it over in the same way. So while it's a big moment that we've seen and we go, what the hell is that? We need more about it. He's like, "Ah, (laughs) this thing is distracting me. Turn it over. And and in the previous scene, too, we see him kind of playing with it a lot. And then this is finally him. In this moment, he's calmed down a little bit. And and also, you know, just the fact that in the last scene, he was like super agitated, very, you know, upset. And then this is the moment where he's kind of on the downswing. And then, you know, we did we have talked several times that, you know, we're almost certain that it's Teddy that he's talking to on the other end of the mm-hmm. phone, even though it is this unknown presence. But uh, you get the impression that Teddy is kind of uh, experienced at getting him calmed down. Absolutely. I mean, he's got this edginess about him as he speaks on the phone. Um, and so I do think that that's exactly what's happening. You know, like he's kind of gone on a bit of a weird tirade. Um, and he's sort of just in this moment and just babbling, you know, and it's it's that moment where his hand kind of comes into his line of vision near the phone. He's fidgeting with the cord. He turns over the photo and then, oh, yeah, remember Sammy Jenkins? Oh, didn't I tell you about his final test? You know, and then it goes right into it. He refocuses again. Yeah. And and do you think because, um, you know, we get, you know, Teddy talks about, you know, you've tell me about, you know, I'm sick of time. Ta- I'm. I'm sick of hearing about the guy mm-hmm. that do you think that he's heard this part of the story? Because he, he you know, I, again, we don't hear his side of the conversation, but we get the impression that he is, you know, uh, you know, urging or that Leonard is getting a cue to that, uh, that Teddy, the person on the phone has not heard this part of the story before. It's an interesting point. So like when Teddy is telling Leonard, sorry, I'm just shifting in my chair. So I don't know if my sound is coming in and out. Um, I, I, when Teddy is telling Leonard, Oh, I'm sick of hearing about the guy that's in a color scene. So if we think about the chronology of the actual story and the linear linear plot here, that's way after this point. Um, Mm. And so this is a situation when, yes, I do think that Leonard has told the story more than once. I don't know if he's gotten this far because Teddy in that color moment cuts Leonard off. So there could be times when Leonard doesn't get this far and there could be situations where depending on the emotional state of whomever he's with, he doesn't get this far because they cut him off. So it's interesting that some people who hear about Sammy Jenkins because he's told, you know, you tell everybody about Sammy. um, I wonder how far he actually gets each time. What do you think, Eric? I I feel like Teddy has heard every story about Sammy Jenkins at least once, but that maybe, you know, uh, to a bit of what Lisa's point, certain ones he hears all the time and certain ones maybe he's only heard once. This is, quote unquote, the big Sammy Jenkins story. And so it's possible that it's one of the ones that Leonard gets to always later on. So maybe Teddy's only heard this one one time before. And for Teddy, who is, like we said, he's sick of hearing about the guy who hears him talking about him all the time. Teddy might not may have heard this and might not remember it. 
because he's constantly hearing about Sammy Jenkins. At this point, it's in one ear, out the other, and all the Sammy Jenkins stories kind of blend in together as one. So maybe it's sort of a, yeah, maybe you've told me this one. I don't know. You know, maybe it's more of that. Yeah, and, and then there is this little bit, again, we get a little bit of the guilt where uh, Leonard again says, you know, I, I never said, he repeats the, I never said that Sammy was faking. I never said that. Yes, absolutely. Mm. There's definitely guilt there. There's definitely this concern. It's like he that's the repetition, right? He talks about how you you condition yourself to make sure you you remember such a thing. And he I never said that Sammy was faking. I never said that like that comes up more than once. There is a refrain that he has memorized and that he keeps repeating. Mm -hmm. But he says my condition maybe is poetic justice for not believing Sammy. And so yes. does he really believe himself when he says, I never said he was faking? Right. Yeah. And I did do, you know, it just, you know, bare minimum research on this and on, on the whole insulin thing and the, the, uh, hypoglycemic coma is, is what it's referred to, which is, is a very real thing. And it, it's, uh, I did read kind of a, you know, a slightly depressing tidbit that this, this can be, um, this has been thought of as a suicide method for, uh, some people sure. have, have done this intentionally. Uh, just like, you know, we can kind of look at Sammy Jenkins's wife, you know, she is, you know, she's using Sammy, like she's explaining it as a test. But in a way, she is uh, more or less committing suicide at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in even testing him, she has to have made that decision where this is an outcome she's good with. Yes, she's prepared for the possibility. Yes. I mean, he says that is it she didn't want to he says she really thought he'd call his she'd call his bluff or she just didn't want to live with the thing she put him through. Yep. And so she's either, she's just, you know, at a point where. If I've been wrong and this he's not faking it and this is real and he really can't get this out of it. My God, what have I done to him? Look at the things I've made him do just because I couldn't deal with the possibility that this is all true. So if this is really the case, I'm so guilty about what I've done, then I, I don't you know, I, I need to. It's just time for me to go. And I'm yeah. prepared for that to be the case if he really is not faking it. Yeah. And, and then really the kind of the, the last note that I have is I, I do like how this you know, this whole scene wraps up with, you know, the, the callback to the, the previous scene. And we see how much that, you know, even the, the person on the phone kind of loses track of how much of like where Leonard's memory is whenever he brings back the, the drug dealer. And Leonard has gotten into this Sammy Jenkins mode that he's completely forgotten about the previous discussion. So he's like, what, what, what drug dealer? dealer? Yes. And again, another. this is the beauty of the editing of this. You know, Stephen talks about how Stephen, like we're best friends now, but he, he <laughs> BFF, Stephen said, that, you know, it's, it's the greatest, one of the greatest, if not the greatest screenplays he's ever written. This thing didn't win an Oscar for original screenplay, <laughs> and I'm still salty about it. Um, uh, what won that year? What was the winner that year? It was something big, though, because that look, was I'll look at it. Keep 2000 is the year of Gladiator. Yeah, if you don't mind. Um, 2000 is the year of, of Gladiator, um, and uh, I can't think of what else. American Beauty was 99, so I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, it, you know, like, 
the editing and the screenplay and the narrative to this, like I, I, I've taught this in, in my film class that I, that I run every now and then, where do you just think about the construction of a sequence and where do you cut and how every cut is a punctuation mark, you know, depending on whether it's a quick pause, like a comma, and you're just changing perspective or whether there's a giant exclamation point at the end of the scene, like we were talking last uh, a couple of episodes back where we were talking about the breaking of the pen um, before he prepares to do his self-inflicted, if you'd take that word, tattoo. Um, (laughs) It's like a bang in that situation where he's running through the color scenes that Eric is doing with Dodd. Um, This, like, what drug dealer? Is like this really couple of extra question marks. You know, maybe it's one of those, and I can't think of the term. I'm not this good with my minutiae. Um, the ex, the question mark, exclamation point, like the double punctuation mark. It's just such a great moment. Uh, the Antero there bang. There it is. Thank you. I love that you're nerdier <laughs> with your punctuation than I am. That's really. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that's that's really all the notes that I have for this. Um, you know, if we've we've got a ton ton of stuff with it was Stephen Tobolowsky, oh. and you know, most of it was really you know with the Sammy Jenkins stuff, and and I I feel like. We pretty much covered the, you know, the bookends of the the Guy Pierce things. Unless either of you have anything else that uh, that you want to say about this scene, I had only one uh, that the I think it's the final shot that he gives her appears to be in the exact spot on her leg where Leonard pinches Catherine, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yep, it does align with that. Okay. It does indeed. Yeah, that's yeah. That, I'm glad that you caught that. I, you know, I, I think with me focusing on. You know the the Stephen Tobolowski in this. Of it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad somebody brought that up because it it is it is worthwhile to to point out. You know the all these additional similarities between the two characters and just adding to that argument that they are in fact the the same person or at least you know their their stories overlap right. at the very least. There might actually have been a Sammy Jenkins, but their stories overlap and, and intermingle. And some of the what he's telling about Sammy is actually about himself. And he's kind of moved it over the line into the Sammy story and away from the the Leonard story. But uh, yeah, thank you both for uh, for being my co-hosts and uh, taking this little extra time. Yeah, I mean, this is. Yeah. Twist my arm. Yeah. Remind me never to do a podcast with you again. (laughs) These terrible experiences. <laughs> I mean, it has. I think this is not our longest session, but this will be our longest episode of the season for sure. Hashtag worth it. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, this. I, I think it's a good place to end it. And I, you know, as always, I am Bubble Wheat, and you can find me on Twitter where I'm at Bubble Wheat, and you can find this show, It's Time to Rewind, on Anchor.fm, as well as anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. We also have a Facebook group, It's Time to Rewind, a time loop group, and you can join that to discuss time loop uh, movies and TV shows and these episodes as they are released. And uh, until next time, I I assume I've already told you about Memento. Only every time I see you. Every time I see you. Sammy. It's time for my shot. I won't hurt. (laughs) 